Daniel chapter 1, I want to, the title of the series is called No Compromise, and today part 1, we're going to title this message Exile, for when we start in Daniel chapter 1, there it's the book starts off with much action and just gets into the narrative, and it was written to the existing exiles about 600 years before Christ came to the world, and this was to bring encouragement to them. When I say they're exiled, what happened is the Babylonians came to power and they conquered Judah. And when they conquered Judah, they took back key influential people back to Babylon to try to control the culture by controlling the leaders and by setting up world dominance, trying to make less distinctive the Jewish and Hebrew culture and to spread the Babylonian culture. And so we start in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of Joachim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Joachim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. And these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia. And he put in the treasure house of his gods, of God. Verse 3, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was able to teach them the languages and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. And among them were some from Judah, and these will, if you've studied the Bible before or been in church as a child, some of these names will be familiar. Read with me in six, not out loud, but Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the chief officials gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. And many of you have heard of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are great examples of men who did not compromise. They didn't compromise their walk with the Lord. And we live in a day and age and a culture where compromise is not just accepted, it's applauded. Uh, diversity is applauded to such a, uh, to such a height that many times that if we have the ability to be in the ways of God in one environment and to change and be in the ways of the world in the other, it's actually looked upon as something that is desirable or looked at something that uh, shows our diversity. And yet, we're going to see here how these young men were at high levels of influence and training, and yet they didn't compromise their walk with the Lord. Because I believe that for your life, whatever arena you're in, in the marketplace, or especially as we emphasize with our students, our junior high and our high school and college students, as they are launching into adulthood, and they're looking to accomplish great things, that it's possible to succeed under the favor of God without compromising your walk with the Lord. Many times we think it's one or the other. We think our compromise today justifies the end. 
And we're going to compromise just a little bit so we can have more influence. And that influence will give us the ability to stand up for Christ someday. We'll stand up for Christ when we get the platform. We'll stand up for Christ when we get the influence. We'll stand up for Christ when we get the attention. But if you're not able to stand up for Christ where you are today, then no measure of success will cause you to stand up for Christ someday. You so you have to be faithful in the little things, and then God will make you the ruler of much. So today's the day of obedience. You don't wait and say, when I get married, I'll obey God. You're pure today. You don't wait and you say that I'll give to God when I have a lot of money. You give to God today. You're faithful with what God gave you today, and that will qualify you for what God has tomorrow. I believe God's raising up new type of leader, a new type of Christian leader who can be influential, can be at places of influence, who can be at the important places of influence without compromising their walk with God. And so here, this particular book, and we have to remember the context, the exiles who read this got a brief history lesson of what had happened that was recent in their time, and this was an encouragement to them, because when your culture is being assaulted, like the the Hebrews and the, the people from Judah, their culture was totally being assaulted, bad things had happened. The Babylonians had not only conquered their land, but they did two important things to show their dominance. First thing they did, and you saw it in the scripture, is they took artifacts out of the temple. The temple that's to Jehovah, Yahweh, our God. They took artifacts. We don't know exactly what artifacts they were. And as a sign of dominance, they took those out of Jerusalem and took them back to Babylon and placed those in the temple of their gods. Now, could you imagine how demoralizing that would be? How we would feel if, if, if we had another religion or another nation come and take our communion and take our symbol symbolism and 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 take uh, the cross. Everybody's like, "Where's the cross in here?" It's in our logo. Okay, put the cross back up. <laughs> but if they took our symbolism, thank you. <laughs> See that? That's the cross. It's outside. It's inside, and all that. And we'll get some other cool crosses. I was just saving myself an email for later on, but. I hear Beth saying, focus, Aaron, focus. Yeah, I was going to get... But if, if, if people came and they, they took our communion and they took our crosses and they took our symbolism, they took them to their mosque or to their uh, temple or to their place, it, it, it was just a insult, like a in-your-face type of offensive act of showing their dominance. So that's the first thing they did. The second thing they did is they took their important young leaders... And those who were of nobility, and they said, we're going to take them to a new land, and we're going to re-educate them. And their army was far superior. Their army was far more advanced in technology and in size. And can I tell you that that would be a very, very frustrating, demoralizing situation for the people of Judah. And that's why this book brought us great encouragement. And if you're taking notes... That I want you to understand a principle and I want you to look at it with me. It's something in verse two. Verse two, we get insight into the sovereign work of God. And it says this, it says, and the Lord delivered Joachim, king of Judah, into his hand. Now remember, Joachim, the king of Judah, that's the good guy. That's the guy who's supposed to win. The Lord delivered Joachim 
king of Judah? What? How could that be? The good guys are supposed to win and the bad guys are supposed to lose. Here's what I want I want you to understand before we move on because this is what the writer was trying to communicate through this story. Write it down. Despite the overwhelming strength of man's power, God is always in control. I want you to leave this service with that principle. I want you to have that in your heart. God's always in control. But that's what faith is. Know that whatever situation we encounter, God's in control. But we live our lives and we pray our prayers and we choose our attitudes and we choose our words often based off man's strength and not God's control. Can I tell you that? God is in control of the situation that you are encountering. Sometimes man's strength seems overwhelming. And we have a boss or we have someone who is over us and that person seems unreasonable. And they, they seem not to have a, to a certain kind of influence, not only on us positionally, but just with their personality and their demeanor. And we think, how could I ever, ever advance in this job? Can I tell you that God's in control? Doesn't matter how powerful the man is, God's in control. Sometimes that we look at our, our financial situation and the debt seems overwhelming and the challenges seem overwhelming and, and you, sometimes you hear reports and, you know, we, we have to look at reality, but Wow, after a while, it's so negative that you begin to, to trust in man's strength instead of God's power. You can tell you that God is always in control. And when the exiles, when they read this story and reread it, they were reminded that God is sovereign because it was he who chose. He chose for the king of Judah to be conquered. He was in control and he had allowed that to happen. Now, I'm not going to try in the next three or four minutes to try to explain why bad things happen in the world. That is a question for philosophers that, uh, that is dominating education and dominating philosophical thoughts. But I do want to lay out some simple principles of why bad things happen to us sometimes. Like I said earlier, just like I was talking about the sound system, sometimes we give devil credit for everything, and, and there is true that he is at work. And that's the first thing that why bad things happen is the work of Satan. The work of Satan. Satan is at work in the world. First Peter 5.8 says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, roaring lion looking for someone to devour. John 10.10 says, The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. So the work of Satan, Satan is at work, and because Satan is at work and has limited dominion in this earth, bad things happen. That's why we need to pray. That's why we need to seek God. That's why we need to abide in the vine. We know that the enemy is real, Satan is real, and he wants to destroy our lives. Here's B, and this is not an exhaustive list, and this is the part that applies to this passage, is sin. There are consequences for sin. And bad things happen to us when we sin. Now, Daniel recognized this because when he prophesied, we, we know that, that in verse 2 of chapter 1, we know that the Lord allowed the king of Judah to be, be overtaken by the Babylonians. Now, when Daniel, go to Daniel chapter 9, Daniel, when he was praying to the Lord, he recognized something very clearly, he recognized that sin had put Judah in that position. Can I tell you this, is that many of the times that we live in a mindset and a culture that we never want to admit that sin is sin. 
We never want to admit there's a consequence to sin. And because of that, there's never true repentance. We're wanting to blame the devil and we're wanting to blame our personality and we're going to want to blame our parents. We want to blame our circumstance. We want to blame everything except our sin and realize that it is our sin that causes bad things to happen. And listen to the words of these prayer, this prayer of Daniel. The whole chapter is a prayer of repentance, but I wanted to look at these ten verses because it just his humility and his honesty just really struck me. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, I'm in verse 4 of Daniel chapter 9, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. Look at 5. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in the name, in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers, and to all the people of the Lamb. Seven. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we're covered with shame. The men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. Look at that phrase again at the end of seven. Countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness. Can I tell you that it is time for us to quit blaming God and quit shaking our fist at God and start looking to our sinfulness and our shortcomings for the reason we're in the situations we're in. Verse 8, O Lord, we and our kings, our princes and our fathers are covered with shame because we've sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through the servant, through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your laws and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, a servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. Twelve, you have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does. Yet we have not obeyed him. Now, when I was reading that passage, there was part of me that says, okay, Aaron, let's not read that whole passage because it's long and, and all that. And people want to hear you yell and do, you know, all that stuff. Y'all like that kind of stuff. But um, I want you to learn, not just get excited. Um, the beauty of that passage has struck me so much because there was no blame to God. He turned the attention to himself as people. Can I tell you that? There is a spirit of repentance that we need, that we need to say it's our fault, God. We've been unfaithful, Lord. We have not, we have sinned. We have turned from you. Can I tell you the problem's not with God, it's with us. Until we humble ourselves and pray and quit being people of excuses and to be people of repentance, then we'll never see God do the work in us that he wants to do. Here's see. Why do bad things happen? This is not an exhaustive list. A lack of prayer. A lack of prayer. Now, obviously, 
just to answer the question that's in many of your mind. I'm not answering the question why the bad things happen to good people and all that type of stuff. But I just know that those three things, those three things is the work of the enemy, our lack of, our, our lack of obedience, or what, what was be there? Thank you, sin. Yeah, lack of obedience. And lack of prayer. That's it, guys. That's it. That's why we're not in the land of blessing. That's why we're not in the place we want to be. That's not why we're as, many of us, that's why we're not as happy as we want to be. That's why we're not, you know, we sit there and think, oh, wow, look at this person. They're at my age and look how far they've advanced. Or, or look at that person. Look at all the advantages they had and the favor they had. Listen, get your eyes on all that stuff and get your eyes on your heart. Where's your obedience? Where's your prayer life? Where, 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 how pure are you? It's not God's fault. He hadn't favored one person over the other. It's us. It's only when we truly embrace our sinfulness, that's when we receive his grace. That's when we receive his grace. And so, can I tell you that God is all-powerful? And, and you have to hold on to that truth when the circumstances look otherwise. These people the people who read this narrative, the artifacts of their temple, their national pride, the thing that they leaned on had been totally sabotaged. The, the symbolism that brought them faith was, it was hundreds of miles away. The young men that they had their hope in, they were being re-educated and trained somewhere else, yet God was in control. God was in control, and he still had a plan. And can I tell you that he has a plan for your life? Don't give up on him. Don't get bitter at him. Don't turn your back on him. He has a plan. This might be a dark time in your life, but a greater day is coming. You know, listen, when we go see movies and so forth, one of the comforts we have in seeing a movie, why it's entertaining is that most of the time we know that the outcome is going to be positive. You know, it's just like uh, the Dark Knight with with Batman. Does anyone want to? Should we raise our hand? Who's seen? No, we're not going to do that. But um, yeah, oh Batman, he was. You know, everybody turned against. Ba- well, I don't want to ruin the the movie for you, but um, I think everyone's seen it. When Batman or whoever, whatever character you choose, when when they're going under, when we know that when they're under distress. Our negative things are happening, and in fact, the plot or the story is looking very dark. As we eat our popcorn or drink our Coke, we kind of know that it's going to end positively, right? And I think sometimes in our life that we forget that God is writing our story. He's the director. He's a screen player. He's in control, and, and, and that might be a dark scene in our life. But in the end, it's going to be good. He's sovereign. He's in control. The power of man and the strength of man is not greater than, than his power. So we, we read on as, as we, as we work, work through the narrative here. Um, and actually, Jonathan, I want you to start working your way up here. Come on up here. In verse 3, they said, bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. And here Nebuchadnezzar 
And this is where I want us to begin to clue in that he had a specific plan. Not only was he going to demoralize the people, but he was going to retrain and re-educate their, their young men. And some of this training would by no doubt include divination, which means they would learn astrology, they would learn sorcery, they would learn things that were not of God, they would learn things that did not, did not follow the ways of the Lord. And they did something very, very important if you look at verse 3 is they they changed their name. Now, to us, that might not be a bad thing. You know, some of us don't like our names. And, you know, maybe we should have a rule that, like, age 13 or 14, you should have a party and say, I've changed my name. It's no longer Aaron. I'm Ed. That's my new name now. I don't like, I don't like my name. But for the Hebrew psyche, this this was... A very, very difficult thing. So the king ordered them in verse 3 to bring in some of the Israelites from royal family, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of Babylon. And the king assigned them a daily amount of food. This is verse 5 from the king's table. And they were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. In verse 6, and among them were some from Judah. And that's when uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. In verse 7, the chief official gave them new names. Can I tell you that one of the things that the that the enemy is trying to do to our generation is he's trying to take them and to change their identity. He's trying to teach our generation of young leaders a new way of thinking. And it breaks my heart all the time that that when I begin to see students that I work with, and especially when we when they go into college, they begin to change very subtly the way they think. And they begin to, to change and reorientate their mindset. And they begin to change their identity. Can I tell you this, and I want to encourage you this, is that some of you are going to go to places of learning, and you're going to be too exposed to new ideas, and you're going to be exposed to new concepts, and you're going to have a whole new world of education open to you. And I'm all for education. But here is what you need to do. You need to realize that you can learn things, but you can't let the things you learn change your name and change your identity and to change who you are. You can't allow that kind of compromise to happen in your life. It is possible, it is possible to be trained for the king's service, but you are still serving a different king. You are still serving for those, for Daniel and for uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There they were. They had no choice in the matter. They had no choice over how they were going to be educated, but they had a choice on who they would continue to serve. They had a choice on who they would follow. And I want, I want for every one of us, every one of our students to put a stake in the ground and to say, listen, I know who I am. God has marked me. God has put his name upon me. God has given me a destiny. God has given me an identity. And I'm not going to let the training of the world change my identity and change who I am. This is who I am. And I am putting my feet in concrete and I'm not going to move. I am not going to move. They were being trained for the king's service. But what they didn't realize... Listen, even though they were being trained to serve Nebuchadnezzar, they didn't realize that God was sovereign, God was in control, and God was setting them up to the exact place they needed to be to serve a different king. They were there to accomplish his purposes and accomplish what he wanted in them. Can I tell you, listen, I believe that the talented, the educated, the 
ones that have the ability and the aptitude to learn. We have the greatest students and the greatest kids. God has given us a great inheritance. Can I tell you this, that God is positioning them for his work and for something great in his life. I'm going to ask you two questions, and here's the first question I want to ask. Who is your true king? When you're being trained for the king's service, who, which king are you really serving? Are you going to serve the king of this world? Or are you going to serve uh, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who gave his life for you, and what does he want? Here's the second question I want to ask is what are you giving your talents to? What are you giving your talents to? What are you giving your abilities to? The enemy desires to take your abilities and to take your talents and to take them captive. He wants to take them captive, and he wants to possess them. He wants to use them for uh, his own propaganda, just like Nebuchadnezzar did. But can I tell you this, that the place that you're at, the place that you're at, that your talents belong to the Lord. Your abilities belong to the Lord. What you have to give to this world belongs to him, and you will not compromise. You will hold fast to what God has. I want you to join me in prayer right now. Father God, we're believing for a consecration unto you this day. Father, what I'm praying for is the same spirit that was on Daniel and was on his friends, Lord, that you would place that kind of bold spirit upon us this day. Place that bold You are in control. You are sovereign. You are real, God. And God, you have a call for us. You want us to take our talents to the service of your kingdom and your purposes. We love you, Jesus.